Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from Chris Lowen, who is part of our teaching team here at Crossview. So I actually want to talk about uh, something that I have thought a lot about over the last uh, five to ten years. And it, it has to do with this short phrase that you all know. And it's found in the words of Paul. And, and the phrase goes like this. Our citizenship is in heaven. It comes from Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read this passage, when you hear this passage, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Do you think of heaven as the place somewhere far away from here where you really belong? It is where your true citizenship lies. And someday Jesus, who is now residing in that place far away from here, will come someday and rescue us out of this terrible place and take us back home to where we truly belong. After all, we are just aliens and strangers here on the earth. Is that, is that what comes to your mind? Or what if the New Testament authors have something else in mind? Perhaps there's another way to read this passage in a way that can actually have a deeply profound attack, attack, deeply profound impact on the way that you live your life now in the here and now. What we really need to do is we actually need to unpack this word citizenship and heaven before we can really explain what citizenship in heaven means. So why don't we start off with the word citizenship? When we think of citizenship, it is natural for us to think of citizenship in the context of our own North American context. I am a Canadian citizen. I was born in Canada, and I belong in Canada because that's where I grew up. That's where I was born. Someone who was trying to obtain a dual citizenship, let's say from the U.S., that person has to meet a certain set of requirements in order to get that dual citizenship. For instance, you might have to live in the U.S. for an extended period of time before they get their green card. Now, that is all true. But it is an understanding of citizenship that is grounded in a modernistic North American context. But what about Paul? How does Paul view citizenship? And I think that the best way to understand maybe how Paul views citizenship is to ask a different question, and that's this one. What did it mean to be a citizen of Rome? Because being a citizen of Rome is the context of Paul. You see, the context is the Roman Empire. And right here you can see this is where Rome is, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and you have the Roman Empire. This is the context that Paul is from. Now, Rome is not just a city that was, that was content with its own boundaries, their way of life, their culture, and their society. The Romans wanted to have world power. 
And there was an ideology that drove them to want to make all of the known world Roman. However, you don't do this by getting everybody in the known world to come live in Rome. You don't do that because there's not enough room in Rome to bring everyone there. So they actually conquer and colonize the neighboring nations and cities with their Roman way of life. We call this colonialism. You acquire power and control over another region by occupying it with your people and then you exploit it economically. And inevitably, you smuggle in your culture. You smuggle in your religion and your way of life. Now, there's obviously a positive side to this because there are some good motives here. And I emphasize the word some. There are some good motives. The Romans, they aim to bring health care and the benefits of their modern technology, not to mention cultural or even spiritual blessings to those in desperate need of them. And that is true. But often, what the local people saw was that their land was being taken away by force and that their culture, their Asian way of life, is being squandered and squashed. That is what most people think of when they hear the word co a colony or a colonialism. A great example is actually our history of North America, the history of America and Great Britain. From the 1600s to the 1700s, the British king established 13 British colonies along the Atlantic coast of North America. And just as a side note, isn't it interesting that within this history, the voices of the colonizers are always louder than the voices of the colonized? Isn't that interesting? We actually lack the perspective of the locals that were already living here in North America before the British came along. Colonialism usually works this way. As we know, the British rule eventually came to an end when the 13 colonies declared war against the British Empire and they won the war, of the, the war of independence in the early 1800s, and thereby they became the United States of America. So that's more our context, but it actually makes sense of colonialism in the mind of the Romans. You see, the city of Philippi is right here, right beside uh, Thessalonia, not very far from Rome. And Philippi was in the northern part of Greece, in the region of Macedonia. And Philippi was one of these Roman colonies that was started about 31 years before Christ, when the Romans took over that region. What happened was, and I'll just zoom in, just so we can see it a bit better. What happened in that region was during the Roman Civil War, that broke out after the assassination of Julius Caesar, we have these two generals by the name of Antony and Octavian. And Octavian is actually the Caesar Augustus. He became Caesar Augustus. Now, these two Roman generals, they led the army to fight against the assassins who killed Julius Caesar. And the, one of the greatest wars during the Civil War happened in this region, in the Philippi area. When the war was over, now you have a whole bunch of Roman soldiers in that area with nothing left to do. 
And so Caesar Augustus at that time just gave them the land. He said, here you go, this land is yours. And that is how Philippi became a Roman colony. So by the time that Paul comes around, which is about 100 years later, Philippi would have been filled with the families uh, that would have descended from these Roman soldiers. You would have had some of the locals in Philippi who would have benefited from the presence of Rome. But as with most colonial situations, there would have been those who would have resented the invasion of the Roman way of life. The Roman colonists living in Philippi would have been very proud of their Roman citizenship. And they would have done whatever they could to, to order their way of life in such a way as to mirror the way of life in Rome. This would have included the establishment of the Roman imperial cult, which is their, their worship. They had Caesar worship. So as a Roman citizen in Philippi, you worship the Caesar who is residing in Rome. Your whole life circles around the worship of Caesar. Caesar is Lord and King and Savior over the whole world in the mind of the woman. So according to Paul, being a citizen of Rome in Philippi meant bringing the culture of Rome to Philippi. Okay, so we can start to see the meaning of citizenship, and we can see it make more sense. So the notion of citizenship does not just mean belonging. It means representing. To be a citizen is to be a representation. You represent Roman ideology and religion in the way that you worship, the way that you give allegiance to Caesar. You represent Roman culture by participating in her way of life. And you represent Rome by reflecting her social implications of honor and shame in all of its, its uh, hierarchies of structure and power and authority. Roman culture was supreme and you represent her wherever you go as a Roman citizen. And that is how you change the world. That's how you take over the world. And so Paul is coming into that way of thinking about citizenship, and now he's offering a new way to think about citizenship. And what's really interesting is that before Paul talks about citizenship in chapter 3, he talks about citizenship in chapter 1, but he uses a slightly different word. This is what he says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word here, pollutio, pollutio, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's close. Conduct yourselves, pollutio, in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the sense there, based on the translation, is pollutio has something to do with patterning your life after live life conduct yourself in such a way that it looks like the gospel of christ now what's interesting is the uh the new living translation translates this word actually i think in a beautiful way above all you must what live as citizens of heaven conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So living as citizens of heaven has something to do with patterning, patterning, 
patterning your life over the good news of Christ. Which is very, very interesting. And so Paul's language here is far more politically charged than what first meets the eye. There is a real tangible call here to live as citizens of a kingdom contrary to the present worldly kingdom. To live as citizens is actually to give your allegiance to a far better king. Caesar is not king. Jesus is king. So the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean? What does the citizenship in heaven look like? But whatever answer we come up with, it must contrast with Roman citizenship in the way that it reflects its contextual meaning. It cannot be somehow detached and suspended from its original context. Here's where many of us actually slip into some really interesting ideas about heaven that come into direct conflict with how we understand citizenship. So before we can unpack what citizenship in heaven looks like, we have to unpack this word heaven. So let's talk about heaven. Many of us, including myself, have thought about heaven as the ultimate destiny of humanity, which is not here, but somewhere far away. It is where God himself dwells. Earth is just a temporary residence that will someday be destroyed, and we are aliens and strangers here on the earth longing for our true home. Many of our beloved hymns, many of our worship songs reflect this and in many ways have had a far greater influence on our understanding of heaven than, than the biblical text. Here's an example. Many of you know of the song, This World Is Not My Home. And just by hearing that, you can kind of feel it in your bones. I'm not going to sing it. This world is not my home. I am just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's a very otherworldly understanding of heaven. Here's the other song, Amazing Grace, the sixth verse. The earth will soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who calls me here below will be forever mine. What's interesting is that many of the hymnals that we would have in our church, pews, actually don't have this verse in the song. Chris Tomlin when he came out with his own rendition of the song, he brought the verse back in. Now, this actually reminds me of what the late theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer said in the 1900s. He is a well-known theologian, author, and pastor from in Canada. And this is what he said. Christians do not tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. Ouch! That is harsh. That's harsh. And by the way, I don't think this is true often. But what I like about this quote is that it has a way of jolting you. It grabs you and it forces you to think about the songs that you sing and what those songs are teaching you. And in this case, A.W. Tozer has a problem with how many of our songs are teaching, how some of our songs are teaching a theology that's not even based on the biblical text. 
But there is this deep-seated belief in many of our minds that heaven is this place that we're going to end up while the earth is destroyed and discarded. But this is actually a far cry from what the biblical text says. Think of the Bible as having two book covers. And the front cover, in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, flip the Bible to the other side, to the back cover. In Revelation 21, we, see, we hear John say this. Then I saw a what? A new heaven and a new earth. This whole language of heaven and earth is simply a phrase referring to all of creation, the entire universe. So at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Somewhere along the line, sin came into the world and corrupted that beautiful, good creation. And then we see in the biblical text a story about how God wants to heal the heavens and the earth. And we see that come to full fruition at the back of the Bible. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The story throughout the Bible is this. Earth is our broken home. Earth is our home. It's broken. But it will someday be healed and restored. That's the story of the Bible. But for our purposes, in understanding how Paul uses the word heaven in Philippians 3, I think that there's actually another aspect of heaven and earth that would be more appropriate, which is to say that heaven and earth are like two dimensions, two presence, like two areas of presence. I prefer the language of dimensions. God's presence is like a dimension that operates alongside our earthly dimension. And by the way, the Bible Project, if you've heard of the Bible Project, they have a wonderful video on this. Just go to YouTube and type in the Bible Project, Heaven and Earth, and you will come up with uh, about a seven-minute video that beautifully outlines this. But I just want to summarize their points here because I think it's really helpful. So heaven domain, heaven dimension is where God exists. This is where he rules. In the earthly dimension, well, that's just where we are. The earth dimension is just where we are presently. To use the words of the Bible project, you know, you'll see here, as the circle come together, the story of the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth, God's dimension and our dimension, were united. They were one. The Garden of Eden was this place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly. There was no separation between God and humanity. And humans then partnered with God in building a place of flourishing, a beautiful world to live in. Now we know where the story goes. We know that because of sin, these dimensions were drive, driven apart. God and humanity no longer could be in the same dimension. Heaven and earth, God and humanity was driven apart. And the rest of the story of the Bible, just like I told you before, the rest of the story of the Bible is how God wants to bring these dimensions back together. That's the story of the Bible. 
throughout scripture, there are different words and phrases that are used to describe these two different dimensions. In the heaven dimension, you have words like God's presence. You have words like the kingdom of God, eternal life, the kingdom of heaven. In the earth dimension, you have words like the world, the worldly kingdom, the present age, sin, and death. And in the Old Testament, we see examples of how God actually is trying to bridge these, these dimensions. And you see it especially in the language surrounding temples. The people in the Old Testament, they built these temples so that they could experience God's presence. You go into the temple to experience God's presence, but because of sin and death, it was temporary. The temple was not a permanent place to experience God's presence. Sin drove people apart. So there's constant struggle. Now, in the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, we see that God actually comes into our messy earthly dimension. And he brings heaven to earth. Remember Chris talked about, a couple of weeks ago, he talked about that with God, clean does not become dirty. But dirty becomes clean. God entered into our messy dimension and he absorbed our sin and makes us clean. And this is why John the Baptist says in John 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So through the cross, through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God and he creates this new space, this new clean space that is permanent. It's no longer temporary, just like we saw in the Old Testament. And what is more, Jesus empowers us to be like him in the way that we represent his kingdom in the earth. He empowers us to spread the kingdom of God in, and reuniting heaven and earth. And that is actually what the Lord's Prayer is all about. In Matthew chapter 6, he says there, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's talking about. And also, do you know all the references in the, in the Gospels where it talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? For example, Mark 1 verse 15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. That middle purple section, that's the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. One day, and we can see this in the closing pages of Revelation, when heaven and earth will be one day fully united when Jesus returns. And we see this most clearly in Revelation 21, verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The first century hearers would have jumped for joy when they, see, when they hear that. One day, God is going to dwell with humanity with no limitation. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This old order is this earthly dimension that's being enveloped by the heavenly dimension. And he who is seated on the throne, which is God, said, Behold, I am making everything new. This is the story about heaven and earth being one, finally, at the end. And so when we talk about what it means to be a citizen of heaven, this is what we're talking about. We are citizens of a kingdom that is far superior than anything that this world can offer. The Roman citizens within Philippi did not expect to go back to Rome. They just expected to bring the culture of Rome into Philippi. In the same way, the followers of Jesus, whose citizenship is in heaven, are expected to bring the kingdom and the culture of heaven to earth, wherever they are. They manifest the kingdom of heaven until one day when Jesus, the true king and Lord, comes from heaven to make all things new. And there's one more thing. One more thing. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And then he says this, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. If the colony of Philippi was in danger of invading nations, like from the barbarians, they will await a Caesar, the Lord and King of Rome, to come and save them. Not to bring them back to Rome, but to save them within their Philippi colony. And by the way, these terms, Savior, Lord, and Christ, Christ is coming from the language of king, kingship, these terms are actually Caesar titles. They originally belonged to Caesar, but Paul comes in and he uses these titles to refer to the only one who's worthy of them, and that's Jesus Christ. And so in the same way, Paul is not talking about one day going back to heaven. But he's talking about the source of our confidence to live in the world in a way that reflects kingdom of heaven until finally Jesus returns. The biblical vision in scripture is not that Jesus saves us out of this world, but he saves us within the world. Jesus will not come and take us out of heaven to a home far away. No, it just says in the next verse, it says this, who, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so the key here is this. Earth is our home. Where we are right now is home. But heaven is our citizenship. We are citizens of heaven in our home called earth. Transformation is our hope, not escape. Not escape, it's transformation. So now we have to ask the question that's going to help us get at the heart of the matter, and it's this question. What does it look like to be citizens of heaven in our context today? What does that look like? Paul answers this question in the verses leading up to our passage, starting in verse 17. He says this, 
joined together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And he says this, For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, and their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. What I want to point out here is that Paul is asking the Christians in Philippi to follow his example. He's asking them to imitate. Why? Because there are those who are choosing a life that is contrary to the life of the heavenly citizen. Now, what does an earthly citizen look like? We have to ask, answer that question before we can answer what does a heavenly citizen look like. And just to summarize this, an earthly citizen looks like this. He is selfish instead of selfless. He's the enemy of the cross. The cross is the embodiment of selflessness. And number two, pleasing and serving the self instead of the other. The God is their stomach. The word there is actually a belly lover. The God is in the stomach, it's in the self. And what Paul emphasizes here is that this earthly life, this earthly citizen, that life does not actually lead to honor, it leads to shame, and it is a life that ends up in destruction. That's what Paul says. And so the point here is that ultimately, to live as a citizen of heaven means to imitate Jesus Christ, the King. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. It's not enough to simply believe that you are a citizen. We must actually live out. We must become a citizen of heaven. Remember, Paul wants us to imitate him. It's not that Paul wants us to just imitate him because he's the perfect one. But it always has to do with the fact that he wants us to imitate him because he is trying to imitate Christ. He wants us to be co-imitators together with him of Christ. And he says this actually beautifully in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I like to think of it this way. Imitate me as I imperfectly imitate Christ. But what does this actually look like? We still haven't answered that question. And I think that the answer can be found in Philippians chapter 2. So we went back. To, we're in, in 1 Corinthians 11, we looked at 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Philippians 1, Philippians 3, and now we look at Philippians 2. And this is what a citizen of heaven looks like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the others. And I love this part. In your relationships with one another, he lays it out so simply. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is what it means. That's what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven, serving and caring for others. It is a life that takes the eyes off the self and turns them on to the other. It is an other-oriented kind of love. All right. So what does it look like to be citizen of heaven in our context? So we saw what Paul said to the Philippians. Now, what does it look like in our context? I have four points. Four points. It's not an exhaustive list. Just four ideas for us to consider. Number one, how do your decision affect others? Isn't it true? Often we make decisions without considering what sort of effect those decisions are going to have on the people around us. And as a result, others suffer. Our kids suffer. Our wives, our spouses suffer. Our employees suffer. Others suffer. And what sort of decisions do you have to make today, tomorrow, this next week, this next month? And how are others going to be affected by those decisions? So that's number one. How do your decisions affect others? Number two, genuinely listen to the needs of others. Listen to the needs of others, the people who work for you, your children, your spouse, even the people on the other side of the political spectrum as a youth. How can we serve others if we don't know what their needs are? And how can we know the needs of people if we don't listen to them? That's number two. Number three. What if sometimes we make the decision we don't want to make? And I want to emphasize sometimes. What if sometimes, not all the time, because that would be, that would not be good. What if sometimes we make the decision to do something we don't want to do? What if we make a decision to do something that doesn't actually benefit us in the moment in order to put the other person ahead of ourselves? Fake it till you make it. What if sometimes by forcing ourselves to make those decisions, we can actually start to make better decisions more naturally in the long run? And lastly, number four, what does it look like for us to function as a colony of heaven? And my point there is this. It is actually far more than just an individual thing. It's corporate. We are heavenly citizens who are part of a colony of heaven right now. What does it look like for us collectively as a family of Crossview? What does it look like for us to be a colony of heaven? How can we embody as a family the self-sacrificial love of Christ? Can you imagine what the other-oriented way of life in the kingdom might look like for you, what it might, look, what might it look like for us.
And that, my friends, is what the kingdom of God looks like. Let me pray and then, and then we'll close our time. Father, thank you that you are king over all of creation. And all the kings of this world are nothing in comparison to you. And thank you that you have a kingdom that we can be a part of, a kingdom that you have empowered us to represent. And it's amazing that you call us as imperfect human beings to represent you. That's a lot of faith to put on us. But just like Paul calls us to imitate him, we are called to imitate you ultimately. And even though we may do that horrible sometimes, do it so imperfectly sometimes, it is still a worthy calling. And just like in the words of the song, I have nothing else fit for a king except for a heart saying, hallelujah. And if that is all that we can do right now in the moment, then may that just be our offer, offering of praise to you. But just speak to us in ways that we could in ways that would remind us of how we can be a citizen of heaven in the present moment, wherever we are. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for trusting in us to be your, your representatives. We love you, Jesus. You're beautiful. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.